Summer is here, and we're as busy as ever at the DSR Network. Our podcast schedule has expanded to include the DSR Daily Brief, DSR Foreign Policy, DSR Politics, the DSR Spy Show, Words Matter, Foreign Office with Michael Weiss, Next in Foreign Policy, and The Secret Life of Cookies. To celebrate our expansion, we're bringing you this special offer. Through the month of June, membership is 50% off. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content across all of our podcasts, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRexpands, all one word. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRexpands. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to Deep State Radio. This is Rosa Brooks, and I am hosting today's episode because our fearless leader, David Rothkopf, has once again vanished without a trace. And if you see him... Please tell him that we said, please come home, all is forgiven. But don't worry, uh, even without our fearless leader, we're going to have a great episode today. We have two of our regulars here in the virtual studio, and we also have a special guest. So let me introduce everybody. We've got David Sanger of the New York Times. Hi, David. Hey, Rosa. So if if Rothkopf isn't around, does that mean we can just tell Rothkopf jokes and stories? We absolutely can. And we're going to get to that. Because he's not there to defend himself? I think we're going to spend the full 45 minutes on that topic. Okay, good. uh, And we also have, of course, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Lovely to see you. I have a fund of Rothkopf jokes. (laughs) Okay. Everybody gets to include at least one Rothkopf joke in each comment. Um, And of course, we also have a special guest today uh, who's joined us many times before, Steve Walt, the Robert and Renee Belfort Professor of International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And I'm pretty sure that's the uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. School of Government, not the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. School of Government. Uh, Right, Steve? Absolutely right. Excellent. And and I will be defending David in my normal contrarian role. Okay, good. We look forward to it. Um, So Could be lonely, Steve. Could be very lonely. I'm used to that. Um, All right, Steve. Say one nice thing about David Rothkopf, just to start us off. Uh, He has shown remarkable capacity for intellectual growth over his career. (laughs) Okay, excellent. He used to criticize me, and now we're friends. Very good. I'm not sure that counts, though. Um, okay, well, let's let's get... It, it certainly does, because Walt would never say that about any of the rest of us, I can tell That's you that. That's right. None of us show growth. We, I show, I've shown absolutely no growth over my career. Um, I pride myself in a sort of, you know, rigid fixation on, you know, all points of view. I never change my mind. So s- let me start with you, David, because I understand that you may have to leave us a little bit early. Uh, we It's been kind of a busy week this week for senior U.S. officials. Um, uh, my understanding is that U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken took a trip this week. Can you tell us about that? Well, his trip was to Beijing, and um, 
this was long delayed. This was, you may recall, the trip he was supposed to take just before the spy balloon was um, discovered, or at least became visible in uh, Montana. Yeah, I kind of missed the spy balloon. I like the spy balloon, and I'm, I'm sad that it's gone. You, you missed it. Well, well, don't worry about it, because they've launched an entire fleet of them oh, thank uh, goodness. that are circulating around the world, so I'm sure you'll have an opportunity to get one back. Excellent. And you know, there was sort of a debate in the administration about whether or not to cancel uh, his previous trip, because... The trip was intended to follow up on the meeting that President Xi and President Biden had in Bali back in November. And the idea was to at least build a floor under the relationship and then to send uh, Secretary Blinken out as the sort of advance guard of a series of U.S. officials who were going to try to reestablish with the Chinese first some basic communications starting with military communications, Rosa, because one of the things that we learned during the spy balloon incident, and I think we discussed on some previous episodes of Deep State, is that while the U.S. and China set up communications, emergency military communications, for incidents like this, and they did it after the collision that led to the downing of the EP-3 and uh, uh, back in the early early days of the George W. Bush administration, no one really answered the phone this time. And so it was not clear to American officials whether this was a deliberate launch of a spy balloon over the United States, whether a balloon that had been intended to go elsewhere drifted this way. The intelligence conclusion in the months since has been that while the Chinese probably didn't intend for it to go over the U.S., once it began drifting that way, they did nothing to stop it. And uh, then ultimately, you'll recall, the balloon was shot down over um, uh, South Carolina, uh, and um, the remnants of it were picked up by the Navy uh, from pretty shallow water. And the administration quite deliberately did not make public the results of what they found in the giant payload, something that President Biden has referred to as sort of the size of more than a school bus full of, of data. So um, they didn't do that because they didn't want to further anger the Chinese, keep the argument going, and further delay Blinken's trip. So he finally takes it. Um, he had many hours with China's uh, top foreign policy official, Wang Yi. They discussed everything from uh, China's uh, nuclear plans to uh, Russia. Uh, Blinken renewed the warning that China should not be providing arms to the Russians. He got pretty much an assurance that they, they wouldn't. But when he turned to the question of setting up crisis communications again, he got no commitment from them to go do so. He was then given a half an hour with Xi Jinping himself. And on the one hand, the good news about that was the president of China agreed to see a secretary of state. The bad news was when you looked at the optics of the meeting, you know, you sort of had Xi at one end of a table, sort of above Blinken. Um, it was meant to convey to a Chinese audience, we're in charge here. Um, I'm told that the conversation wasn't a bad one, uh, but that at the end of the day, what we're seeing here is the American side 
trying to tend to the relationship more than improve it, just to try to keep it from going off the rails. Um, how did this play, Ed, uh, to international audiences and 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 com- and comparing the U.S. reaction in China? I mean, did did the optics, as David just described them? Uh, uh, there's Tony Blinken, who I who I do want to say I think Tony had a nicer suit than President Xi. Tony has very nice suits, um, but aside from that, how did this play um, in terms of the sense of the relative power relations between the U.S. Secretary of State on behalf of the United States and the President of China? Was did this end up being a a victory for China, or or is this a draw, or is, is this and is this going to is this in fact going to help stabilize U.S.-China relations? Well, it's certainly better than the alternative. I mean, in the in the context of you know really sharply deteriorating relations um, between the U.S. and China, and between Biden and Xi as well, um, you know the, the the alternative was a further deterioration. We've had some very near misses in recent weeks with aircraft and with um, and with naval uh, with vessels in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Straits, and so um, there is pretty much universal nervousness around the world, both from, you know, China's friends and America's allies and and all countries in between, that this most important bilateral relationship, great power relationship in the world could kill us all. Um, so some, some relief that America's repeated efforts since Blinken cancelled, as David, as David outlined very well, his trip following balloon gate or whatever we call it um that that finally that th- this trip could have gone ahead and of course it didn't produce any major breakthroughs and there will be no military to military guardrails or routinized um you know exchange of information communication between the defense ministries and the militaries that's a pity that needs to be put in place but just the fact that they were talking um, and um, that it didn't sort of end in acrimony constitutes good news in this context. I should so add one little postscript to that, though, which is since then, Biden was quoted um, at a private fundraiser in California, I believe, as calling uh, Xi Jinping a, a dictator. Unexceptionable observation to, to you and I, but and something that, the Chinese could have just pretended not to hear, um, but they've chosen to hear it and they've chosen to be offended by it. Um, and that's not a very good sign. That's because Biden, you know, is known, including in China, for being a bit loose-lipped, a little bit sort of um, prone to gaffes. Four times he said the US would come to Taiwan's defense and China has chosen not to react officially to that. They've chosen to listen to White House official clarifications of of Biden's remark that the one China policy is unchanged. On this occasion, China reacted quite splenetically. They are outraged that Biden would call Xi Jinping a dictator. So trip was the least bad thing that could happen in this context, but it's some of it's already been undone. Rosa, can I just make the point that we get all we get all the best lines from Biden at fundraisers? Back in October in New York, that was where he started talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis that was unfolding with Russia. This was at the height of the nuclear fears. I mean, you know, in some ways, the time you want to listen to him the most 
is at the very moment when he's standing in somebody's living room and you think you're going to get the speech that you've heard 15 times before. Well, this is what I was going to ask you, Steve. I've always wondered about this uh, depiction of, of President Biden as gaff prone. And I've always wondered if these aren't, you know, accidentally on purpose, uh, crazy like a fox kinds of gaffes. You know, I, I, and I just don't know. I mean, part of me thinks, yeah, he just starts talking and then he just says some stuff and he's like, oops, probably shouldn't have said that. Oh, well, too late. Um, but another part of me thinks, you know, he knows what he's doing. And these are actually fairly calculated little gaffes um, that are designed to accomplish something specific, uh, you know, send a signal to foreign leaders, um, uh, you know, do things like, hey, she, just because we were, of course, being polite to you and nice to you doesn't mean we've forgotten that you're a dictator, for instance, in this particular case. Um, what do you think? I mean, is are these are these just oops or are these uh, these carefully calculated and, and doesn't matter? Yeah, I think it's clearly a little bit of both. I mean, uh, Biden's reputation for uh, you know, loose lips goes back 30, 40 years, long before he was president. It's well established that he'll get rolling and won't necessarily choose his words carefully. That, of course, does create an opportunity as well, that he can, on some occasions, perhaps say some things deliberately for the reasons you name, for strategic purposes, and then let his, his underlings walk it back and allow others to ignore it if they if they so choose. I, I think uh, Ed is right, though, that the Chinese have chosen to use this uh, little slip, which they could easily have ignored, as an opportunity to say, let's not anybody be under any illusions that this was some kind of breakthrough. You know, we still have a lot of issues here, and we certainly are not uh, going to be a supplicant uh, for cooperation from, from the United States. I mean, none of the structural problems between the United States and China were directly addressed here, and I don't think anybody really expected them uh, to be. China, I think, was interested in doing this largely for economic reasons. Um, their recovery is not going particularly well. Uh, the tensions are creating, and the Ukraine war creating problems with them in Europe. Uh, which is a uh, somewhat unusual development, including even in places uh, like Germany. And if they were counting on the American business community to get the Biden administration to back off, that doesn't seem to be happening as well. Um, for the American side, we wanted to lower the temperature. We don't want a war. Uh, we want to cooperate on key issues like climate. But neither side was adjusting their basic positions here. Right. And there's some fundamental strategic incompatibilities that the two most powerful countries in the world are going to view each other with a certain degree of wariness and suspicion. And our goals in Asia are fundamentally different, where I think they would like the American role in Asia to gradually decline uh, and leave them more or less in charge. And we would like to stay there and make sure that they are not in charge. And that's just a fundamental incompatibility that you can't necessarily resolve with any uh, nice meetings. Domestic politics in both countries then makes it worse, right? You have hotheads in the American Congress and you have their equivalent uh, in China uh, as well. Uh, and the final reason, though, that both sides, it seems to me, had an interest in at least lowering the temperature a bit was that this was making other countries in Asia nervous. Uh, and especially on the American side, we're simultaneously sort of trying to recruit all of these countries into a closer anti-China coalition without scaring them so much about the prospect of a conflict uh, that they start distancing themselves as well. Uh, but I, you know, I think this is, was about the best that you could expect. And my guess is um, 
as you know, it, it were well, it remains to be seen how this plays out. I'd want to say one thing about the lack of military to military contacts. I can't figure out um, uh, what's going on here, whether or not this is a case of the Chinese just not wanting to make concessions here, not wanting to, you know, they'll they'll give a few concessions along the way, but they'll hold this one in reserve or whether or not they, they actually like a degree of brinksmanship in the military relationship uh, in Asia. Uh, incidents with fighter planes, uh, you know, actually remind everybody, or it may in the Chinese mind, remind everybody that there's a real potential for trouble here. And Americans and others really want to think carefully about whether or not they really do have vital interests there. So in a sense, pacifying uh, Asia completely may not be something that Beijing really wants. That's exactly what I was going to ask you about, David, is, is what's going on with this? I mean, it seems almost incomprehensible. It seems like it seems like regardless of your interest, surely you want to have a communications channel to prevent accidental escalation. Steve is suggesting that they may think it's a good idea to make us be frightened of accidental escalation. What do you think is going on here? I, I think Steve's right. Uh, they have long been suspicious of our use of the phrase guardrails. You know, we think to ourselves, oh, guardrails. Who wouldn't want to have guardrails? You're speeding down the highway. You want to make sure that you don't run off the road. Their view is that the guardrails are carefully constructed by the United States to keep them from making legitimate claims in their minds on territory that they want to have, whether it's over the median line in the Taiwan Strait, or whether it is a claim on territory around the islands that they have built up from basically nothing in the South China Sea. And so that's the core of this. They think that what we're describing as rules is actually a backdoor to containment, and that if they agree to it, they're basically agreeing not to patrol in those areas because people will say that's international territory. Their solution to this problem is get off my highway. It is worth noting, however, that the Chinese are right in the sense that we are, in fact, attempting to contain China. We're certainly trying to limit their ability to dominate certain areas of high technology. That's quite an explicit uh, American goal. and We've stated that. Guardrails, guardrails for you, handrails for us. Right. So in other words, the American position is we should be able to do whatever we want and change the rules as as need fit. And if you object to it, then you're the source of the problem. And of course, they view it exactly the opposite way, which is, again, why we have a, a sort of structural issue that's uh, one, in fact, where getting the two sides to at least talk to each other is a good thing. So each side understands the others, understands where the red lines really are, but it's not going to eliminate those uh, areas of conflict. I think it's just worth worth pointing out, and David might sort of corroborate me on this, certainly in my conversations with senior White House officials, the line that's been given to them by their Chinese counterparts when they raise the need for guardrails is very explicit analogy, which is, no, if we agree to seat belts in the car, to switch analogies, if we agree to putting in seat belts, you're just going to drive faster. In other words, America will just push us more and more. And, that's, and that, that analogy, I think, is produced in the context of the Americans saying, look, we're in, in terms of the U.S.-China relationship, we're in the pre-1962 Cuba missile crisis phase of this relationship. We do not want to have 
a Cuba Missile Crisis before we put in guardrails. Whereas the Chinese are feeling, yeah, we are in the pre-Cuba Missile Crisis um, phase, but from a different perspective, which is that you are massively outweighing us in terms of strategic nuclear weapons. Um, and we want parity or something approaching parity before we start agreeing to um, these restraints you're asking us to put on. So we were, obviously the Chinese were quite offended when President Biden's comments, private comments at what he thought maybe was a private fundraiser, suggesting that she was a dictator. The Chinese were quite offended by that. Um, um, it turns out though that we really have nothing against dictators. Um, and so today and tomorrow, uh, the president is hosting the prime minister of India, Nahendra Modi. Um, uh, and, and President Biden is coming in for a lot of criticism here in the United States for rolling out the red carpet for a guy who uh, many would say, if he's not actually a dictator, he certainly would like to be one and is moving in that direction. Uh, he's been uh, cracking down on internal dissent, on journalists. Uh, he happily presided over the imprisonment of his chief political rival. Um, what is President Biden Ed, hoping to achieve here uh, by inviting uh, the Prime Minister of India to to a whole bunch of fancy meals and fancy events in Washington D.C. What's what's going on with that? Well, India is um, you know a neighbor of China. They share a two thousand mile border. A lot of it quite hotly contested and disputed. Um, uh, and no no other country in the world or in Asia is of India's size and weight. Uh, to be able to potentially play the role as a counterbalance to China. Uh, India is, you know, as paranoid about China as the United States is. And I think a lot of the paranoia is very well grounded. Um, there was a, a nasty border skirmish two, three years ago. A lot of Indian soldiers were clubbed to death um, by their Chinese count PLA counterparts. So uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend uh, on that principle. The United States and India are drawing closer together and Modi, you know, is being given a very thick, lavish red, red carpet by Biden. He's going to be one of the few foreign statesmen to have twice now addressed a joint um, session of Congress. He'll get a, a very um, glittering state dinner, though he's not technically the head of state. He's the prime minister. Um He'll get, I think, probably that you know the most glittering reception of any foreign leader so far during Biden's administration, and it is all about China. Now, your question, quite correctly, implies that there's a clash there between this sort of re realistic sort of pursuit of geopolitical um, friend making um, and Biden's idealistic um, proclamation of human rights being at the heart of um, his foreign policy and democracy versus autocracy being um, the sort of guiding principle because Modi is, I think, the most significant democratic backslider in the world. India is still just about the largest democracy in the world. It's certainly the largest country in the world now. It's overtaken China earlier this year. Um, but I, I think it's pretty fair at this point to say, given the... Um, attacks on the free media, given the fact that he's thrown the opposition leader out of parliament, Rahul Gandhi, that civil society is being sort of snuffed out. Any criti critics 
of Hindu nationalism are really getting either marginalized, legally harassed, uh, charged with sedition, um, put under house arrest. In the case of Kashmir, the entire place had the internet shut off for a year. Um, that this is no longer a democracy. This is an electoral democracy, autocracy maybe, or an illiberal democracy, but it is the biggest democratic backslider in the world, I think. And so there's a lot of tension there. And my, cri my criticism of Biden would be, sure, of course, India and the United States should move closer together. It's entirely understandable. There is a shared and totally legitimate fear of China. But when you start lecturing other countries on their human rights and on their political conduct, don't see, be surprised if they slam the door in your face because you are going to be quite rightly accused of having very opportunistic standards and if not double standards. And I just wish the, I just wish the Biden administration would play this in a slightly more nuanced and sophisticated way. I think they actually are playing it in a more sophisticated way than they're talking about it. I mean, they understand this. You know, the the problem is that when the president went and did this very black and white autocracy versus democracy thing, he got himself in the same hole that Jimmy Carter did in talking about, you know, fundamentally making uh, foreign policy about human rights, which, you know, would be a wonderful thing for the world. But uh, most presidents discover that you go in saying all of that because it sounds wonderful. And then at some point, you've got to deal with the Modi's of the world or MBS, somebody who's you need for strategic purposes, and then you're caught eating your words for a while there. And uh, that's exactly where they are today. Now, what's interesting to me about Biden is he doesn't seem to have a problem doing that. I mean, he went to Saudi Arabia and did the fist bump, you know, with MBS, and basically got nothing for it. Now, maybe they will in the future. There's discussion underway now of a nuclear, uh, civilian nuclear program that the U.S. may um, help put together with the Saudis. There's discussion of their normalizing relations with Israel, which would be a huge win uh, for Biden if he could get it. But the fact of the matter is that these are the two most egregious examples, India and Saudi Arabia, where autocracy versus democracy doesn't sound so hot. David, I think we're about to lose you. Am I right about that? In just a few minutes, yeah. Okay. And I also think this is just about the moment where we normally take a short break but we really would love to have you uh, support Deep State Radio uh, and the quality podcast that, that you are experiencing right now. Um, so goodbye uh, to those of you who are not members. We hope you will join us and become members. Um, goodbye, David. Thank you so much for taking time today to be part of this. We will see you again very, very soon. Uh, and we will be right back.